Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne. This is Inside Exec. Today we have a guest with us, and that's Marty Strong. Marty is a retired Navy SEAL, a combat veteran and CEO. He's a consultant, speaker, the author of nine novels and two business leadership books. Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business, and Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, which is his most recent book that was released earlier this year. Marty spent a lifetime meeting challenges head-on, succeeding in three professions, anticipating crisis and leading through chaos, which are things that we definitely want to talk about today. So welcome, Marty. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. You make me sound more like a secret agent than a CEO. I like, <laughs> that's it. No, well, well, I like as, that. As we said to Marty before we started recording, Fuliana and I had a meeting before this session, and we determined that we were going to have to be very focused and very careful about what we said and be mindful of what we were doing. So we're on task. We're on target for our activities. We sent through, Marty, some questions about being a visionary leader. That's what we'd like to talk about today. First question is, how nimble do we really need to be, Marty? Oh, man. Think about it. Look at all the things that the universe is throwing at us. I mean, personally, professionally, and economically, global, politically, but the only thing we haven't had lately is a meteor that we couldn't stop. So you, you have to be nimble. You have to be agile. You have to have a creative and adaptive mindset almost across the, the spectrum of, of human endeavor. So being in business is maybe a little bit more challenging because you're, you're trying to deal with all those things. You know, you've got your own internal emotions, you've got employees, you've got how everybody reacts to the internal stress, the external stress. So I tend to lean in a lot using some of my my SEAL training to cope with stress and cope with these challenges with a sense of humor and with a um, a strong sense of intellectual humility. I try to clear my mind every day. I write about doing this. Clear your mind of all your positive and your negative baggage. Get rid of all the victories and get rid of all the defeats. Try to approach every challenge, and if you can, every day, with an open mind, ready to take and absorb new insights, new information that may com- completely conflict with your, your prior knowledge and may also be in conflict with your formulas and the, and, the, and the way you've been doing business successfully up to that point. So that's essentially what I think being nimble means to me. It might sound very basic, but is it really about being disciplined? Well, that's it. Yeah. So every behavior, every, every behavior that you can convert into a habit then becomes by definition, a disciplined behavior. And I think what I just laid out is no different than diet or working out or, yeah. you know, half a dozen other, you know, trying to control what, how you communicate. If you've got things you want to change in your communication style to improve how you influence people rather than put people off. So yes, I think it's, um, it's definitely discipline as a mindset. It's something that can be learned and then it's something that can be practiced and improved upon and applied. We've talked about it in previous podcasts, but we see a disconnect between people being disciplined about their health and about their, their mental health, perhaps, and what they do at work. So that they don't seem to make that connection about, yes, I can, I can be organized about getting the, the meal on the table or going to the gym or whatever else it is. But at work, there's a different mindset. They're in a different place. So how do they recognize that they need to do it in everywhere they're doing it? Sure. Well, I believe that discipline kind of precedes mindset. If you establish a discipline in any category 
to the point where it becomes a habit, to the point where it actually converts into a mindset. Think of like a philosophy, a life philosophy. You're no longer really following the detailed discipline plan. You're not beating yourself up every day because now you're in a groove. Now it's going to be hard to get out of that groove if some new information comes along and you should you should change, right? But we're talking about general mindset. So things like health, most people look at health as a sacrifice system. You want what yeah. you want. It's available whenever you want it. And yet that's contrary to a mindset of always being healthy. So you're in conflict unless you can somehow figure out how to create a mindset that makes you comfortable with passing by what you shouldn't be consuming, right? Fitness is completely separate. I mean, there are a lot of people that are very healthy because of the way they eat. There are other people that are very fit, but they're not that healthy because of the way they eat. You can decide that you want to become healthier from a fitness standpoint. And now your, your, your struggle is time. But where do I fit this in? You know, how do I, how do I you know, wedge this in with all the other things that I've got going on? What's the right way to do it for my age, for my, for my body type, for my objectives? So those are two different categories I, I split out. And then if you think about it, like I write books, so I've got a discipline system that has evolved into a mindset about how to write, how to write, when to write, how much to write, and when to walk away from it so that I'm hungry to write again the next day. Yeah. And I think that's the answer. So you have to kind of chunk these different things, address them as separate categories. You know, where are you? Are you in the, I should be disciplined, but not yet initial habit forming mode or already in the discipline mode, but it hasn't become a mindset yet and go through each of those categories to include and in business. You can parse it out. Also, you what are all the behaviors at business is leadership planning. Is it the ability to um, problem solve? Is it communications? So there's, there's, you know, four or five categories you could look at and say, okay, I'm good. And I have a good mindset in this, but I, I don't really understand this at all. I'm not doing very well. I'm all over the place. You could diagram it. You could lay it out on a piece of paper, whatever, but that's, that's how you have to address it the same way. Chunk it into categories, do an inventory of kind of where you are in each of these categories, and then decide whether you want to make a full on effort, be absolutely <laughs> perfect in everything. That's where we are now. <laughs> and a lot of people seem to do these things when it comes to work and fitness, but when it comes to social needs, like me time, catching up with friends, family they seem to a lot of people I work with seem to say oh I haven't got time I I wish I could do it more but from what you're saying Marty that can be applied equally to to that argument can't it well you can make that one of the chunks right you can make that Mm -hmm. a category a mindset a philosophy a behavioral discipline because if you don't what's going to happen is let's say you follow what I laid out in all the other areas you're kicking butt in every category except your wife's left you, your kids hate you, you have no friends. (laughs) And and essentially, socially, you're miserable. You're highly effective and and successful and miserable. So Mm -hmm. it's worth putting that in as a a legitimate category. Yeah. I kind of set goals for myself each year. And I always have a couple in there that have nothing to do with business or anything that has to do with me and my wife and our home, just because you have to. If you don't, it gets gets shoved off to the edge of the table, and then it kind of falls off. And time goes by, and then... It's too late. True. I'm interested in the title of your newest book, your latest book, The Age of Optimization. Is that a phrase that you've come up with yourself or is it something that you you feel is we're moving towards? Well, the Age of Enlightenment had already been taken. Ah. Um, <laughs> a child uh, of the 60s, never mind. 
Oh, I actually remember all that. Those are against those are against establishment, anti-disestablishment terrorism. Sorry, I'm sorry. If you remember it, you weren't a child of the 60s. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I coined it necessarily, but I refer to it as an age because I was trying to compare and contrast two different ways of steering businesses or governing businesses, Cor- large corporations and small. And what I'd been seeing over the last at least 10, maybe 15 years was that there was an emphasis on short-term gratification, mostly in publicly traded companies, mm-hmm. where the senior executives are being compensated with, with stock options. Well, there's a lot of things you can do in the short run, meaning like within 36 months to make your stocks more valuable. You mm-hmm. can buy back stock. You can shut down and decrease or completely eliminate uh, research and development spending. You can do the same thing with marketing and um, sales support spending. You can stop acquiring, whether it's to stop a competitor or to become stronger in a new market. So these are all things you can do, which the shareholder population will see as beneficial because their short-term view is now linked with yours because their shares are going up, your stock options are going up. And at least in the United States, the average C-level executive spends about 3.5 years in office before they move on. Coincidentally, right. So what you end up with is my strategy is to make the company look really good on paper from a cash standpoint for 36 months. The stock will be strong when I walk out the door. I'll walk out with my stock options and the next person can worry about what's going to happen in five years. Now, that ended up trickling down into the business schools and then got into the textbooks. And then it started to become the short-term gratification and measurement of the recent history. I mean, micro measurement with, you know, enabled by technology was actually the best way to steer a company. In other words, by looking in the rearview mirror, that's the best way to steer the car down the road going forward. Now, when I say it that way, it doesn't make any sense. But when you talk to people that become very, you know, good at this, the the aficionados of Mm. key performance indicator management and risk mitigation management, almost to a person, they abhor looking forward. Because everything in the future is unknown. You can't I'm measure. Done. So if you're the ultimate risk mitigation person, the best way to mitigate the risk of the future is to try to avoid it or somehow pretend in your own mind that it's going to be exactly like the past. So what's what's next year's budget, next year's goals? We're going to take last year's budget and last year's goals. We're going to flop it forward. We're going to bump 2% up on the, uh, the revenue number. And we're just keep steering the way we always have been. That's optimization for optimization's sake. And that's also optimization improperly used as a strategic or strategy method for governance. The opposite end of the spectrum is the pure visionary, the head in the clouds type person who's never never has their feet on the ground, always coming up with great ideas, always concerned about this threat coming over the horizon, always pointing to that great opportunity over the horizon. And they can never seem to get the thing into any kind of concrete form. So those are the two extremes. In the book, it's about understanding the two extremes, but also finding that there's a middle ground and there's a binary relationship. You got to have both. Optimization is not a method of strategic or visionary projection of the future. And vision and strategy and all that doesn't help you if you're really screwing up the numbers looking backwards. You have to have both and they have to work in concert, not either or. Are you seeing that happen? Are you seeing the, the middle road being taken? There are some, a lot, a lot of private companies are, are more enlightened in this, in this sense. Usually you become more enlightened the first time you get burned by not paying attention mm-hmm. to the future. The pandemic was something that 
in at least the United States, we'd had epidemics, there'd been pandemics over, over the years, and it was a part of history, and that's fine. So you can say, well, that, that was like a black swan, that should have really knocked us off our, uh, off our rocker. But in reality, that wasn't what knocked us off our rocker in the U.S. It was the government's reaction. The government, for the very first time in recorded history, shut a nation down, shut the economic yeah. part of the nation down, the schooling part of it down. Nobody anticipated that. No, there was nothing. There was no playbook for what do you do when that happens. Mm. So that was really the true black swan event that the, the pandemic caused in our country. And if you survived it as a company, it's because you eventually got into a room, rolled your sleeves up, and said, "Okay, it's May of 2020. Nothing's changing. It's not going to change. And if we don't do something quick, we're not going to be around any longer. So we need to reinvent ourselves. Yeah. Whether that means a new product, a new service, uh, push our current products and services harder to a different market." cut what we're charging, increase whatever the change is. But you get in a room and you say, whatever got us here is not going to get us down the road. So let's reinvent, let's rethink. And the, statistically in black swans, a third of the companies in an industry impacted by some kind of unknown, unforeseen event kind of crawl into the field position and hope it goes away. Mm-hmm. One third does that for a short period of time and then finally grudgingly starts to realize they got to do something about it. And one third does what I just described. They immediately realize the world's turned. We got we to get our act together. We got to do something different. Yeah. And those are the ones that tend to reap the rewards coming out of those events because they've actually seen it as it's bad, but where are the opportunities? And they start jumping on the opportunities and start, they start to become the leaders of the new normal. Maybe it's a little bit early, but are you seeing that change? And so you've got these organizations that did jump in and did do the, the things that saved them. Are they falling back into a bit of complacency now? I don't think so. My parents were in the Great Depression in the United States. And so that generation in our country canned food and, and hid things away and squirreled stuff away because they, they never knew if it would happen again, but they knew what it felt like when it did happen when and they didn't want happen. to they wanted mm-hmm. to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And generations after that didn't have that emotional, you know, scar, that's that psychic imprint. And so like with my kids, if I say, well, you know, I've got freeze-dried food, they think I'm, I'm crazy. But I, I, not because I lived through it, because my parents were so into making sure you had at least, you know, a month's worth of food all the time, one yeah. way or the other. So it's kind of like that. I think whether you, you started late, whether you, if you crawled in the fetal position and just kind of gave up and waited for it to go away, you're probably not in business anymore. But two out of those three groups are veterans. They're like combat veterans. They've lived yeah. it. They've seen it. Yeah. And there'll be a while where that generation's leading small business and medium-sized business and large businesses with that in the back of their mind. They, they can't be complacent because they've had the, you know, the rug pulled out from under them in a really big way. And they may never get to the point where they trust, trust a lot of the assumptions. So, which is a good thing. You should be on the balls of your feet when you're leading businesses because the universe has a way of making things happen. When you're leading businesses, you, you touched on the fact that you do it right, you bet average three to um, and a half years in the job. So if they do it based on their performance that way, we're going to have a problem, obviously. But if we link that to what have they done for the future planning, their remuneration and package is related and their performance measurement based on what have they achieved in the short term and what have they done for the long term. How many companies, in your opinion, or not just a number, is there enough companies doing that, measuring their CEOs that way? No. 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 It's it's very difficult 
the compensation system is lucrative and it's hard to decouple that. So you have a population of people that are eligible to be senior C-suite level leaders. It's their time. They want their package. They want their, their deal. Now there are private companies, I think that have gone that way. Mm -hmm. And there may be a couple of public companies that have thought about it and may have happened. and, And I'm just not aware of it, but for the most part, it's very difficult to make that kind of quantum leap. One way you could measure it, and I used to manage money for United Bank of Switzerland, and there's plenty of information in annual reports of companies if you really wanted to look at it. But it comes down to the investment, mm. the investment philosophy of, of a company, and anybody can do this. Think of it this way. You buy a house, and you have enough money to have the lawn taken care of to put some nice landscaping in or to or keep the landscaping that's there looking good, the driveway, keep it you know in, in good repair and all that kind of stuff. But instead you save up the money and five years later, you take all that money and you go on a five week vacation. Mm-hmm. So you didn't invest a single penny into the upkeep and the maintenance of the value of the home. Now, if it's a company, as I mentioned earlier, the investment, not just you know, the cutting of things, the cutting of costs, but research and development is a cost, but it's also a place you want to invest for the future. Right. Mm. And so is sales and marketing. Your pipeline is only as good as the strength of that sales and marketing mechanism. But another thing that's a real, a real indicator is training and development. Mm. If you are not training and developing your current employees, if there's zero or almost, almost no investment dollars in the budget every year, whatever the size of the company, You've basically accepted that you're going to take that employee in on day one, right off the street. And like that house analogy, you're going to let them stay exactly the same or maybe even deteriorate as long as they stay with you. Yeah. So when I say it out loud like that, it sounds like a ridiculous way to run things to allow that kind of atrophy to happen and that kind of decay to happen. But it also takes a lot of courage nowadays to look a money person in the eyes and say, what we're going to do is we're going to spend this, this, and this. And we're not going to see the rewards of this for five years. Yeah. Because nobody's thinking in five-year timeframes. It's yeah. hard enough to get them to think in two-year timeframes. That, that takes courage for a leader to do that. And then they have to have patience. And they have to wait for the, the fruits of all that investment to take hold. Yeah. Keeping in mind that the tenure of um, a CEO is what we said, three plus. But when they go to another role, as they being interviewed, if they can demonstrate what you just said, I have actually made profit for the company in there, but I also put all these things in place for future, retaining staff, keeping them motivated and educated and, and all of that, as well as I've done research and development to see us for the next three, five years after I go. Of course, that's going to make them a more attractive candidate than somebody else. You would think so. There are founder publicly traded companies that have founder leaders, American companies, you have like Warren Buffett, uh, you had uh, Jack Welch of GE for a long time. They were there for decades, not just three or four, three or four years. And they instituted these kinds of things. Jack Welch of GE created something called the GE Academy. It was for training all the different layers of supervisors, managers, senior executives. And what he said was when he was picked to replace the departing CEO, he said, well, why me? And basically it was, there was nobody else. There were no other options. There were no choices. They had no internal. He was the only internal candidate that even semi-qualified. And so he made it kind of a goal of his that when it was time for him to be replaced, 
there would be a stable of fully vetted, fully capable right. people, and it would be a hard thing to pick. But yeah. any one of them, any one of them, could run GE. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a far, that's yeah. a far looking view, right? That's that's a strategic point of view, and there are a lot of leaders that are like that. But for, for the most part, they tend to have either been early in a big company and they've got a lot of sweat equity in the whole brand, and they want to stay with it, and they ended up at the top. Or they're the founders. Mm-hmm. Are we also talking about a type of succession planning so that we're looking at these higher level executives up to the CEO, that their commitment is is really just to the bottom line. It's not to the organisation. It's not to the longevity of the organisation, but just to their tenure in that period of time. It would be nice if that, I think in, in, in more enlightened boardrooms, the succession plan, I mean, that's even a more extended view of the future, right? That's even more of a commitment to the future because yeah. what you're going to do is you're going to educate and make sure that all the potential candidates that are going to all kind of move up, when one person moves up, they all kind of shuffle, right? That they all understand the long-term goal, the long-term view, mm-hmm. and the long-term prospects. Because if you understand the point of the exercise, which is while everybody else is looking at the tips of their toes, we're moving into North Africa. And we're going to own that market in four years. You know, that's the kind of mindset you have to have that then connects the the sacrifice. Because what you're doing is you're sacrificing the short-term numbers by diverting what could be just pure EBITDA and you're diverting it into investment, whether it's research people, acquisitions, things like that. That's a long-term, I'll say it almost like generational, not like human family generational, but like leadership generational, that if you do it right, Whoever takes the place of Jack Welch should be thinking like Jack Welch. You shouldn't immediately come in there and, and destroy the academy and say, that was a dumb idea. It yeah. shouldn't look like the changeover in political parties taking office of a country, where it's, it's kind of like, you know, you've got two hands on the steering wheel going this way, and then the new party comes in and goes, yep, and they yank it the other way. And so you're kind of going all over the road for a decade, but you're not going very far down the road. Yeah, yeah, all of that makes it very clear. I think it'll be good for our listeners to hear those viewpoints as well. We'll pause our discussion with Marty Strong about the age of optimization. Join us for part two of our discussion. For now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne, and this is Inside Exec. <laughs> 